1: New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy.
0: Welcome to this new episode of New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. We are here today in Nice, in the occasion of the 30th annual conference of the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy. We are here to interview... Uh, One of the authors of a great new book uh, published in 2018 by Cambridge University Press, the title of the book is Modern Evolutionary uh, Economics, an overview, and there are great top economists among the authors and they are Richard Nelson from Columbia University, Giovanni Dossi from Scuola Superiore Sant'Anna di Pisa, and we have Constance Helfat from Dartmouth College, Andrea Spica from University of Hohenheim, Cindy Winter from Wharton School in Pennsylvania, Pierpaolo Saviotti from Utrecht University, Ken Lee from Seoul National University, Franco Malerba from Bocconi University, and our guest, which is Kurt Dopfer, professor at University of St. Gallen in Switzerland. Thank you for being with us, Professor, and please can you introduce yourself and uh, the history of your profession and how you ended up being the author of this book.
1: Thank you very much for your inv- invitation. It's a great pleasure to say a few works and saying something in a range you indicated of five minutes of on uh, author academic uh, biography background. I wish to do that uh, with regard to the understanding of the book. And if you would force me to uh, reduce it uh, to five (laughs) or two or three minutes, I would say it may be captured as a series of crises that happened uh, in my academic life. Now, crisis number one was uh, when I wrote my PhD thesis. I was, at that time, in the 70s, Fascinating by Jan Timbergen's theory of the convergence of uh, capitalism and socialism or Eastern and Western countries as it was called at that time, but I found out uh, it's very unlikely that these uh, systems converge opposite to that what i what I thought I believed in Timberg now that was crisis number one <clears throat> now it could be resolved uh, by writing that book and completing the thesis which was warmly received, and Tinbergen wrote Arabia, and so on. But, and, and afterwards, I got uh, uh, from the Swiss National Science Foundation um, a grant, two year's grant, to go to the U.S., and I went to Harvard and uh, Stanford for a couple of years, and that set the stage for crisis number two, because I realized how different economics is in the US and the economics I've learned in Switzerland and I knew from my German-speaking colleagues. So how do you resolve, if you have a crisis, how do you resolve that problem? Well, I thought the best would be to make out a project. And the project was, I invited leading economists to write for a book, Economics in the Future. The subtitle was, uh so a new paradigm, I came across uh, happily uh, the book of uh, Thomas Kuhn and at that time in economics that was a strange term. So I published that book in 1976 with um, uh, several leading economists, among them uh, Jan Timbergen. It was translated into uh, 10 languages and uh, uh, published with McMillan, that time a great uh, publisher. So I could resolve crisis two also happily. But please note, as evolutionary thinkers, things accumulate. The crisis number one always stayed with me and the crisis number two never quite disappeared, but it had some resolution. Now, I got after the US, I got an invitation to Japan for three years while I was first professor, and in the 70s, 72 to 76, and that was definitely crisis number three, I realized how different societies can be still achieving industrialization, modernization. So heterogeneity, which I really didn't understand, became very, very clear to me what it means our imagination to understand heterogeneity, the heterogeneity of this world is far too small, but it definitely exists. So, crisis number three really changed my mind, and the purchase of this was that I gained a very strong interest in history and economic development. So I did comparative economic development. I got another uh, three years grant from the Swiss National Science Foundation, one year prolongation. So I wrote a book published uh, with Macmillan on new political economy of development, and that uh, referred uh, to Asia. So this was all great. I got also a promotion uh, as a professor at the University of St. Gallen, a lovely little city in the eastern part of Switzerland, 1,500 years old, lovely to do research. But as for the research, doing research on development, uh, more on less or under or developing countries was in a way not satisfying. I wanted to do research on development as a whole, so to say, including countries which are at or near the frontier of economic uh, an economic advance and technological advance. So, what was the theory there? So, that was crisis number four, and the resolution really came with the book by Nelson and Winter. Now, in 1982, that book came out, and I immediately became addicted to it. And that was a very important term. So, there happened many crises afterwards, little, but they all occurred on the evolutionary economic trajectory. So I would say the rest of my crisis and I think of many others too, were on that evolutionary, economic evolutionary trajectory. Now the 1980s it's important to mention, uh, were very important for our community because all the associations were founded. Besides that association of evolutionary, European evolutionary political economy, the International Schumpeter Society was founded, and in various national countries, I don't know Italy, but in German speaking countries, we had a special chapter in the Economics Association doing evolution economics since the 1980s on, which is now 30 years old, a very blooming, flourishing venture doing uh, evolution economics at the national level. So it has been growing since the end of the 1980s on enormously. Now, let me come to the present, that would mean the last 15, 20 years, and <clears throat> um, that brings me closer to the book. Uh, my research was, uh, if you ask me what I would publish, a few articles, particularly on micro, meso, macro, uh, also a book with Jason Potts on uh, the general theory of economic evolution with Routledge, and a couple of books on the foundations. Evolutionary Foundations of Economics with uh, Cambridge University Press, and also uh, a book Evolutionary Economics, Program and Scope with uh, Kluver. And these books uh, really complement the book we are having here. They are more foundational books, uh, and uh, less so uh, on theoretical chapters, as you will see in a moment. Now, let me Come to this book. Uh, Ten years ago, uh, Richard Nelson invited me to publish a book uh, on evolutionary economics, uh, preferably a textbook. Now we discussed it at great length, but we thought it we better have it uh, a primer. So our goal was uh, to have a primer on evolutionary economics. And we worked, and we worked, and we, we exchanged emails via the Atlantic. And in a way, the, the, the takeoff didn't happen. The project fall asleep, so to say. Uh, but uh, after a few years, I got the invitation in uh, Vancouver, uh, 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 Vancouver in Canada, uh, Simon Fraser University, to give some lectures, are great. I thought, why not make a stopover in New York? came to my mind uh, in Vancouver, I changed the ticket, I wrote it, well, I'm making a stop over in New York, and his reply was, I did not forget the book. Now, this was the birth of this book. Then we started discussing, and that's how the book came out.
0: A great story, and let's see now what are the chapters that constitute this book. And we have uh, seven chapters, And this is the first one is economics from an evolutionary perspective. Then we have chapter two, technological advance as an evolutionary process. Chapter three, the behavior of capabilities of firms. Then we have Schumpeterian competition and industrial dynamics. And then we have evolutionary perspective of long run economic development. And then chapter six, economic catch by by latecomers as a, an evolutionary process. And your chapter, your own chapter, number seven, the evolution of evolutionary economics. So uh, you told me about uh, meeting with uh, Richard Nelson and uh, getting back to the book. But uh, what about the other authors? How the book happened to, to be uh, written and to be put together?
1: Well, what would be the unifying threat? That's a very good idea. What's the unity now these days? Uh, I think we have many commonalities even if the approaches are very different. The approaches may be different, but all the, the, the emphasis, the intent to analyze a particular part of the project, so that all will dif- differ. But our, we have a unity in our approach. Let me, perhaps, comment uh, on that unity which comes out also in in the the last chapter and also in the first chapter by Dick Nelson. Now theoretically, or let's start with ontologically, uh, we have an ontological commitment that the world is changing. We don't think in the world of Newtonian physics. Uh, where the particles are moving around based on a law, it's a law of maximization of expected utility under constraints, which is immutable, never changes uh, over time, and, and all behave the same way, there's homogeneity among actors. We don't believe into that, though so there's a strong uh, commonality or a commitment, a shared commitment, uh, ontological commitment, to evolution. Now, second is that you also have a certain uh, methodology. We think quality is important. Now it means that we don't see a commodity space just as quantiles, as Jefferson said, that, uh, uh, but we as quanti- uh, say quantity times price. But we view a commodity space uh, as commodities which have qualitative attributes. So this is or we view the individuals as having a behavioral disposition that changes. So this is a very different viewpoint. It means that we bring in qualitative language, that we have narrative, that we think history is good, uh, that we have hermeneutics and so on. So we share a certain methodology, and that's very clear in the book also. Uh, And the third, perhaps the most difficult one to, Question, do we share a uh, common theory? That's a difficult part. But I think even there, we have a certain understanding which we all share. We share the view that the micro-foundations are very important. So we share the view that that shouldn't be just a maximizing unit, we think it is important to say what it is, how that creature made of fled, flesh and blood uh, is constituted of. Then we think that the environment of that micro-unit is a population. So, it, for, for instance, a technology involves in an industry. So the sectoral dimension is exceedingly important. Now, a single sector, a single population, a single behavioral trajectory, a single technological unit is not itself the economy as a whole, but it is a component of the overall economy. So macro, the macroeconomics means it's a structure of these components, for instance, industries, technologies, or preferences on the consumer side. So we have three distinct areas of analysis one we have the micro we have the micro level and we have the macro level but in the middle we have an intermediate level which bridges these which is the meso level so we get the architecture of micro meso macro which is very different from what we have in neoclassical or mainstream economics now there you have micro and macro and you can immediately, you can aggregate from micro to macro. There's no problem. The problem arises if you wish to explain with a standard model structure on the one hand and evolutionary dynamic on the other hand. How do you explain structure if you don't have any quality in the model? If you do not have any meso, meso structure component? Well, you simply you cannot. So things like division of labor and so on, doesn't come in. For us, this is extremely important, this sectoral analysis, as it then links into the macro domain. So <clears throat> we share, really, ontological commitment, we share methodology, we share ontological premises and ontological structure of micro meso, macro. even if we do not emphasize that we uh, do, indeed to do share uh, this uh, component. This would be the general background of the book and all may be placed into this general belief and one more thing which helps understand the book. <clears throat> this program I just sketched with Micromiso Macro can be extended. It can be extended in two ways. It may be extended into the micro-domain, and Harvey Leidenstein in the 1970s wrote articles and books on that with the distinction of micro and micro-micro, so double micro. With micro-micro he meant the human, the human brain, the human being. And with micro he thought that's an institutional unit, micro-unit like the firm, the household, and so on. Now, you are sh- I'm sure you are aware that in standard economics, this distinction is not made. A very strange so-called theory of the firm, which is not at all a fear of the firm. You just have intersection points of marginal uh, cost and uh, uh, marginal return costs. There really no theory of the firm. What you have is you assume that the micro unit is maximizing the expected utility or return net return, under constraint. That's all what you have. So you have no elaborate micro theory. So we, in the future, we would have to extend it into both directions. What we have in the book is great because we have particularly the micro dimension of the theory of the firm very much, but we well recognize that we would need more into the micro micro direction, into the human being. So we do not have in the book psychology, things like that. But we are very, very well aware, and we write about this. The other dimension, and that's something I made uh, in the book I mentioned of the new political economy of development, was ecology. There I analyzed at great length uh, uh, population, natural population growth in the Asian ecology, agriculture, and so on. And I said we have to extend economics from macro into a. Macro macro or macro dash macro dimension. So, in total, the total extended program of economics would be from micro micro, then coming to the standard domain of micro meso macro, extending on the other side into the macro macro dimension. So, that would be the extended uh, program. We did not go into much detail with regard to that the program, but we are mentioning various uh, sections or various uh, areas we should address. I uh, may return to this. So this would be the overall general framework uh, in which the book must be placed in. I'm mentioning this extended framework because the book has already received some criticism that it is too narrowly con fruit in a way, but I don't think so. We are very aware that the whole evolution economics is broader than one can write in a book. But what we did in that book is that we said, where do we have real good research available where we can write whole chapters? Not where we have to look and don't find the people like a chapter on evolutionary psychology whatsoever or a chapter on some e- ecology or phylogenetics. We said this is important, but we do not have the material to write full-blown chapters. So we have the program set out and we have a selection of where we are strongest at the moment, but by no means arguing that's all what it is about.
0: Well, so you described in a very sophisticated way the heterodox nature of your approach, but we know that even in this conference there are alternative heterodox approaches. So what is the relationship between evolutionary economics, your framework, and colleagues that are outside this book but still at this conference or elsewhere outside the the mainstream approach?
1: Well, that's of course uh, <laughs> a question that is um, enormously broad, but le- let me uh, say uh, if you have uh, technology, uh, just more, uh, well, you could also take the example of institutions, how, uh, I would say the following that, what is the difference, if you take up this question, between the mainstream approach and an evolution approach in general? Well, all these factors you were mentioning are treated exogenously. Take technology, preferences, institution. It's in the exogenous realm of the theory. So it's not part of the theory. What you have is a choice scenario. And if you, do, if you wish to deal with these factors, then the question is how can you endogenize these factors? What well, the fact is that the mainstream doesn't endogenize these factors as explanatory variables, but applies choice theory. For instance, in, uh, you have a technical choice theory. So it's again, you have a static framework where you can deal with technology, choice of technology or isocost curve and so on. While evolutionary economics would be How do you explain the shifting of a cost cost curve, for instance, is a cost curve? Now, that would be the issue. In fact, it goes beyond that. It may be a product which is not at all on the market. So it's not even a shifting cost curve of a given technology, but you might add to the technology space uh, additional products or bacterial inputs. And how that evolves, how that technology is generated, adopted in a population, in industry sector. That is the endogenous treatment which evolutionary economists are concerned. So we are not concerned with the choice of technology. Uh, and then get an equilibrium solution. And then the next step, we have another choice, given choice, and then we get another uh, equilibrium solution at the intersection point. So we have comparative statics in a way Samuelson featured. He never liked Solov's <laughs> theory. He thought it could be solved with statics, uh, comparative statics. It doesn't explain very much uh, how that curve shifts how you come, even if you would get the equilibrium, which we don't think we get, but even if we would get, it still would not explain how that process takes place. Though so you really have two areas of explanation, one assumes technology is as given, and we think uh, technology as well as institutions, as well as preferences, and all other factors should be dealt with endogenously. That is to say, we must explain their origin, their macroscopy, their macro-adoption within a population, social adoption, uh, path-dependence process, and all that will play a role. We have to explain selective retention in an environment, and based on that, we can explain recurrent operations. So that is what distinguishes us from mainstream economists and evolution economists. Mainstream economists do indeed deal with technology, but they just apply a choice-theoretic framework, but do not describe the origin and evolution of a technology. Again, the same is true for institutional, so-called new institutional economics, and evolutionary institutional economics
0: or behavioral economics. Can you can you tell now something about the other chapters before we go into your own chapter?
1: Well, I'm very glad to do so. These are very exciting chapters, so after the introduction of chapter two um, on the technological advance as an evolutionary process, very important uh, by Giovanni Dosi and uh, Dick N- uh, Nelson that brings up the important issue of technological capability. It starts with webland. that technology is a certain method of doing things, so it's a very broad term, and that's a very essential ingredient for an evolutionary economic, dynamic economic theory. So evolution as a sequence of cumulative change, to speak it in Weblin's work. That is elaborated in, in more modern terms, specifically the production of knowledge in the private sector and in the public sector is discussed extensively, which may be integrated or summarized in the notion of an innovation system, the economy as an innovation system. So in the private sector analysis, the differences show up, in innovation, in various uh, industries, uh, in innovation capabilities, differential there, and in the public uh, sector, the role of universities is very important. So particularly the interaction between uh, public and uh, private sector. And Giovanni Dosi is adding an appendix on a formal modeling uh, of uh, problem solving and knowledge accumulation. Now, chapter three, is by Connie Halford on uh, the behavior and capabilities of firms. Now it's very important to see that much of the research, I mean I talk here as an economist, but is done by in business schools. And uh, what uh, Connie is doing here is to uh, review all that research, particularly on dynamic capabilities and <clears throat> uh, routines all in the tradition of the Carnegie School uh, program. So it's not maximizing firms, but the capabilities and routines that uh, are uh, of a major concern for evolutionary economists when they formulate their uh, micro-foundations. That's chapter three. Now chapter four is by Andreas Pücker, and again by, Richard Nelson on Schumpeterian competition and industrial dynamics. And that covers what I mentioned the mesoeconomics. It covers uh, the question how industry evolves over time under conditions of techno- technological advance. How do they evolve? How do they emerge? How do they grow and how do they mature? <clears throat> so it's the life cycle of industry which is here. Uh, important, uh, 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 the major topic of, of this uh, uh, interesting, also interesting uh, uh, chapter. And Sid Winter writes an appendix on history friendly modeling. Now, in all these chapters, in, in this uh, two uh, chapter, four and appendix, the co evolution between production and consumption or Supply and demand, respectively, is of critical importance. Though it's a co-evolutionary process. Uh, co-evolution of habits, co-evolution of consumer and uh, producer instruments, and so on. Now, chapter five is on evolution perspective, perspective of long-run economic development. Uh, this is by Andreas Bücker, by Piero a Paolo Saviotti, and uh, Richard Nelson Uh, and it analyzes now the question how these sectoral studies set up the analysis of the entire economic system, the macro level. So the analysis of the macro level took uh, various uh, paths the two major paths were a uh, uh, focus on creative destruction, the uh, um, which uh, innovation sets in trend. So uh, the differences to neoclassical growth theory show up, they're discussed. Uh, and uh, so the, the effect of the life cycle dynamics on the uh, macroeconomy, so the complex evolving the structure of the macro level, the division of labor, and so on. So this is more uh, innovation, technology focused more in the Schumpeterian tradition. That's one uh, aspect which is uh, discussed in that paper. Another aspect is the role of institutions. For So it's a link to Veblenian economics, particularly also uh, the institution, the government, national innovation system, and so on. There's also a, an appendix in uh, that uh, chapter uh, five uh, by Pica and by these authors as a response to neoclassical modeling. So we can model uh, as well, of course, but we do it uh, quite uh, differently. There's a particular strong emphasis on demand that should be mentioned now the point is that most of research described in that chapter 5 addresses economic development in countries at or near the technological and economic frontiers so chapter 6 takes another look it analyzes development from the point of view of countries that are significantly lagging behind, as one says. So they are not near the economic or technological frontier, but they are striving to catch up. And this exactly is the chapter 6 the topic that Kung Lee from uh, the Korean National University is discussing in a paper with Franco Manerva. So this is a process as uh, uh, Kung Li, in a book, he is also uh, has been publishing with Cambridge The Art of Catching Up, he writes, he is analyzing the middle-income trap in which a developing country grows strongly only to a plateau at a certain point, yet certain developing countries like China and others have managed to escape this trap. Now, building on that conception of a ladder from developing to developed countries, being kicked away, uh, he suggests alternative ways, such as leapfrogging, in which latecomers can, can catch up with their forerunners. Now, this is very briefly a, a tour d'horizon uh, to the uh, five chapters uh, of the book. And again, the last chapter, seven, which I published with Dick Nelson, is on... Research area where we think has not been done enough research, but we think should much more research come about.
0: And this is a a title of a chapter that uh, uh, reminds us of your book of 1976, which was published with Macmillan, and that was Economics in the Future. Chapter 7, instead, is The Evolution of Evolutionary Economics, so the future of Evolutionary Economics. Yeah, thank you very much for referring
1: to that book. And I discussed the economics in the future, of course, uh, in some, with a very l- lengthy foreword, which was a, a third of the book. And I had four propositions. Proposition one, we must have a long run view in economics, and I mentioned evolution economics. But I did not understand exactly what I'm talking about. So that had to wait until the 1980s. Mm-hmm. So the idea of having a more long-run view, this idea was around, but yes, how did it work out now? It worked out in the chapter that I was just saying, and in that particular chapter seven, we start with Dobzhansky. We think what he said about biology, that's true for economics as well. Now, nothing makes sense in economics except in in the light of evolution. So we must take on conceptual classes that allow for ongoing change in the economy. That's the introduction of that chapter on the evolution of evolution economics. Now, the selection of areas is as follows, if I may summarize, major areas where we think more research should come forth. First of all, there should be more research on the demand side. We do not understand the consumer very well, uh, consumer behavior and so on. And this, of course, is becoming increasingly important. And uh, after all, we talk about the co-evolution between demand and supply and consumer and producer. And thus far, we had a heavy emphasis so to say, a supply-oriented, supply-focused approach. So we should extend it to demand. The second is we should redirect the emphasis in the sectoral we give to the sectoral studies. Now, not only manufacturing, all is on manufacturing, but particularly also on the service sector, of course, on the IT sector, and also in other sectors. For instance, the medical sector and the educational sector. These two latter sectors are particularly important because they touch upon the public sector. So you have many social problems like aging and so on. So I think we can integrate this also into an evolutionary approach. All the things are uh, 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 coming to a methodological issue, we need particularly dealing with Quality. when we come to aspects of what we call digital capitalism and so on. All issues like inequality uh, and so on, uh, which we do not uh, deal deal with yet very well, they can be dealt with only if you have a deeper understanding of what goes on. And that comes to the fourth issue in the labor market. So we must deal with quality. We come to the labor market, we thought we must do much more uh, analyze beyond routines. We must understand what creative labor. So it should be a multi-level analysis. Having this uh, talking here about digital capitalism and then turn to labor market, we cannot deal with uh, very well. A fifth area I come to the domain of uh, macroeconomics, and that of course then uh, a huge area. Um, how shall we deal with it? The fact is that we are not doing very well. We have a real sector and we have a financial sector. Now, we did not translate well all our industrial studies into macroeconomics because MISO means that we do not leave isolated the sectors, but that, an industrial sector, is a structure component of macro. So it's a component of macro. And if you do not analyze it as mesoeconomics, we forget that and we leave it as an industrial sector. But macro would be a structure composed of many industrial studies and so on. Of course, neoclassical economics or Keynesian economics both work with aggregates. Uh, can never explain this, can never explain structure, as I mentioned, can never exchange, uh, explain change. So we cannot find a solution uh, if you are, as an evolution economists economist by turning to merely uh, Keynesian or neoclassical macroeconomics. And here the issues of self-organization, complexity economics comes in, and we are discussing the connections uh, to these Uh, Areas And the other side, besides the real sector, is the financial sector. Now, see, we did not respond in the year 2008 very much to what happened. Now, that is uh, really unfortunate. Uh, Probably we could have said more than we really said. Think of the following. We know that technologies are evolving, and we saw that, mass data computer technology exists. We knew that. We saw that finance, financing models were mushrooming it, that financing became a science within economics. We knew that, that these technologies and constructs evolved. We knew that and they co-evolved. And we knew that this will have consequences. And we also knew that we have an institutional side Now what happened? There was deregulation. Now as evolutionary economists, we should have made clear that what we need is not deregulation, but adjusting the institutions to these new developments. But we did not come up with solutions on this, unfortunately. So we were rather silent on this major issue. And the sixth issue with institutional economics it should come in, of course. It's disconnected from what we call evolutionary economics. It never should have been disconnected in the first place. But take an example of EAEP, where a meeting yesterday is a proposal to make a research area of institutional and evolutionary economics. You have two areas. So my question is, if you hand in a paper, the evolution of economic institutions, now, where do you put it do you put it into research area institutional economics or evolutionary? So these things are not separable, and it's very difficult for us ourselves, I think, to understand this. Of course, there's a division of labor very clearly, but then there's a seventh aspect: adjunct uh, fields, particularly evolutionary geography is a fantastic, fantastically booming field, and. Uh, also, uh, evolutionary economic history. There we have uh, various uh, papers of people joining the, the, the groups of evolutionary economists. Now, finally, there is the larger time scale, the very large time scale, the macro macro. So, the phylogeny of the human species. We did not address this in the book either, this macro macro. It means that we did not have a chapter on ecology and we did not have a ch- ch- chapter on um, uh, evolutionary, uh, cultural, evolutionary cultural studies. But we think that should be in that extended program of evolutionary economics would be very important. That's about uh, tour d'horizon, about what we have and what we wrote down in the chapters and what is the research field which is very much uh, a process that goes on a research field in its more uh, extended uh, dimension.
0: That was a a very interesting uh, uh, comment. In fact, uh, I would like to conclude reading uh, one of the reviewers' comments that you can find on the last page of the book. This is Joel Moke from Northwestern University and he wrote this an excellent summary of what has been achieved in the field of evolutionary economics. I would hope that this book would be read by scholars steeped in neoclassical economics and make them appreciate the power and potential of this scholarship. So I would also hope that many are going to buy and to read this book. And this this was Andrea Bernardi from Oxford Brookes University. We had a beautiful conversation with Professor Kurt Topfer from the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland, and we spoke about a book just published by Cambridge University Press in 2018. This was Modern Evolutionary Economics, an overview. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.